imposter syndrome is similar to an emotion like any emotion you would have that's unwanted, like anxiety or something like that. You can't get rid of emotions, they happen. You can't mm-hmm. get rid of imposter syndrome, it kind of happens. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast. My name is Martin McGovern, and I want to introduce you to Mo Goltz today. He is a UX researcher, design strategist at Extra Extra UX, and he's also a student or former student of mine. Uh, Mo, welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be here. Thank yeah, you for man. having me. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to chat with you today about imposter syndrome. It was something that we talked a lot about in our coaching sessions together, and it's something that I know you're very passionate about. And uh, you have gone through quite the journey and come out the other side successful with many offers and a lot of great stuff going on. Um, But I'll pause there and let you introduce yourself and tell us what you've got going on. Yeah. Uh, So basically, yeah, my name is Mo Goltz. And so I do UX research. So I help companies understand their users better to form a competitive advantage and design better apps and websites. And design research and strategy kind of bridges the research to the design through strategy to help actually make apps and websites that are useful as well as easy to use. Um, And basically ever since grad school ended and I graduated, I think I felt like an imposter in tech. And I've always heard that everyone else feels the same way, but I never really believed it until (laughs) recently. And I've recently, within the last couple of months, developed a new relationship to this feeling. Um, In my opinion, it's basically similar to an emotion, imposter syndrome, similar to an emotion, like any emotion you would have that's unwanted, like anxiety or something like that. You can't get rid of emotions, they happen. You can't Mm -hmm. get rid of imposter syndrome, it kind of happens. And so how do I and how do we relate to it differently is kind of where I'm at now and how I've come to thrive in my career versus just kind of survive, if you yeah. will. Yeah, absolutely. And and I definitely know that well. You know, I've grown up with an anxiety disorder. And so uh, oh, really? it never, yeah, it never goes away. Uh, it's always there. But the question is, what happens when it flares up in a way, <laughs> right? Exactly. And so, yeah. What were you and how do you catch it? And how do you catch it when it's a, a, a match before it's a forest fire and it'll flare up, but how can you act proactively so that it's easier and faster to deal with? Exactly. And so bring us all the way back to the beginning when, you know, you said early on in tech, that's when it started hitting you. Was it, yeah. um, was it in school, before school, after school? When, when did you start feeling I this way? Felt, I felt invincible in school because it was a very validating, supportive environment. And as long as you tried really hard and you showed that you cared and put effort in, like I was, I I felt like I was successful, but it's so weird because no one traditionally goes in a straight line to get into tech. So, I mean, I went through graphic design and psychology, but in order to be in tech, unless you're just totally like pigeonholed and you're myopic and what you want to do, which is totally possible. Like if you just want to do engineering, all you know is engineering, but in design, you have to know a little bit about technology. You have to know a little bit about business, psychology, anthropology, sociology, all these things that I could go on and on that you have to be like a a Renaissance person. 
And it's impossible to say, oh, I know everything because the field is constantly evolving, but also no one's like, up until recently, there wasn't any undergraduate education in this field. And now there's beginning to be undergraduate education, but even then it gets even worse because the imposter syndrome can now start earlier. <laughs> like, And so I think there's a level of expectation that has been creative somehow through society, like Silicon Valley, like the HBO TV show is not that much of an exaggeration, just like Portlandia isn't that yeah. much of an exaggeration. And it's just crazy. So imagine trying to be an actor or actress in LA. Well, I was living in San Francisco after graduating and it doesn't matter how good you are at what you do or how good you feel about what you're doing. There's someone younger than you, smarter than you that has, that invites you to, that's very nice to you and invites you to their yacht party <laughs> because they have three yachts. And I'm just like, how is, it's not about money. It's just like, they are successful. And they seem so confident that you're like, if I could be a third as confident as they are, then I'd be a lucky man, you know? And you mentioned that you noticed that, you know, so many people have it as well. It's not just like everyone almost feels like they're the only one that's going through it. This happens with anxiety. This happens with depression. This happens with everything. It's like, I'm the only one going through this. And we get very, um, you know, focused on our experience. But, you know, one of the benefits of being a career coach is that I see that everyone is like struggling in some way, shape or form. Maybe you have your career together, but your relationship isn't great. Maybe you have your relationship together, but your career isn't great. Maybe you have, you know, any number of different things that are pressing on you or bad parents or whatever the thing might be. And so I'm curious in your view, um, you know, do you still feel like it's kind of, you know, something that you're going through? Do you notice that it's like, you're not alone in this? What, what's been your experience? So I now believe in my heart that people also experience it. I always knew in my head that people experienced it, but you have to kind of believe in your heart and your head for it to click. Um, I feel like it's a chronic condition that flares up. And right now I'm really grateful to be in a period where it's not flaring up, but I know that within the next month or so it's probably gonna flare up. I have certain things coming up in my professional life, but because I relate to this feeling, this condition, this whatever syndrome, whatever you wanna call it, I relate to it differently. I'm not afraid of it anymore. So like the way I think about it is kind of funny. I think about this in the shower. I have all these shower thoughts. So in Jurassic Park, um, Chris Pratt's character is in charge of the Velociraptors. Mm -hmm. And he like, I'm gonna kind of reenact this for a second. So <laughs> he has like the, uh, he has like the Velociraptor coming and he like stares at it and he's like, whoa. So you have to like be aware that the imposter syndrome is there and is really dangerous and could, it can't kill you, but it can feel like it can kill you. And you have to like look it in the eyes and like stare it down and be like, I know what you want. I know what you're trying to do. And really ultimately imposter syndrome is just your defense mechanisms trying to protect you from getting caught as a fraud. Right. And despite you ha having accolades and accomplishments and that kind of thing. So to me, oh my goodness, I discovered imposter syndrome maybe in 2006. 17 or 18. And once I had a label for it and I knew that other people had it because if someone else is talking about it and actually somebody wrote a book on it, 
So um, what ended up happening was Valerie Young wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. And this guy named Stephen Gates, known as the crazy one, did a podcast on the book. Um, once I discovered them, and I actually spoke to both of them, in addition to teaching classes and courses about imposter syndrome. Oh, wow. And I, you know, so, so supposedly I'm an expert on it, but I feel like an imposter on imposter syndrome. Yeah, like, what do I, mean, I, why not? Know? Why not add yeah. that to the list? So, and it didn't mean that I got rid of it. And it didn't mean, like, I tried to get rid of it by teaching about it. And I think it helped people, but it didn't help me because by teaching it to other people, I was trying to control it. Mm. And really, I wasn't changing how I related to it. And what I realized was, I was feeding into it by doing the same things that I was doing my whole career, but doing it harder. And once I stopped feeding it by, so like there's five, I think four or five different kinds of imposter syndrome. And like mine is basically like the expert. I need to know everything about everything. So I literally have a digital library that's like two terabytes large right now. I have to have external SSDs to keep track of it, of all the resources in UX that I could ever have. And I thought if I just filled it up, that it would be, I'd get rid of the imposter syndrome. Well, it turns out you can't fill it up. And second of all, there's something called hoarding that mm -hmm. OCD people do. And I was digitally hoarding. And basically what I realized is I need to have, go from hoarding to just in time learning. So yeah. if I get a project where there's this thing that I've never done, I have to trust myself enough to know I'm a quick learner and I know how to ask for help. And I know how to tell people that I've never done this before, but I can certainly try and do my best. And once I realized that I could do just in time learning and tell people that I'm, I'm not, look, no one's Superman. They can't just magically know everything. And I, if we could, then, you know, tell me how, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I like the way you put it, right? You knew it rationally but you didn't have it emotionally yet. And I think that that's something that happens in a lot of areas of life as well as in our careers. Um, you know, oh, I, I know rationally I should be doing a certain thing or I know rationally I should be working out more or eating better or whatever. But yeah. until it gets down into the like core emotions or in our, you know, nervous system, it really, it really uh, doesn't change. And, and I think being intellectually maybe driven, I, I know I'm definitely more of a thinker than um, like a physical person. And so uh, a lot of people, they, they live in their body, a lot of people live in their head. And, and so um, what were the things that maybe helped you go from the head to yeah. like living it? So I want to tell you that it was like, something that I like did over time and practiced and, but it actually ended up being this one thing that I did that did not expect to have the impact on me that it had. So look, look at me, I had a graduate degree in design thinking and design strategy. And I was such, felt like such an imposter that I took a class online on UX research. Like mm -hmm. I had taught this to people. Right. I had been doing it for eight years, but oh, I, I need to take a class in it because I don't know anything. So I took this class um, called Ask Like a Pro, and it was hosted by this uh, company called Curiosity Tank that's run by Michelle Rosen. And she is such a warm teacher. And Michelle, her, her like slogan is basically like practice 
plus guidance equals confidence. And she basically creates a learning environment where you come out more confident. So most people can tell you that you'll learn something new and different and better. And she, she helped me with that. Actually, I learned, even though I had a graduate degree in it, I got her perspective from it. But really what it came down to is at the end of the course, I, I, I booked time with her and I said, give it to me straight. What can I do better? And how can I be like, I didn't say it like this, but I was like, how can I stop being a, a fraud? Like, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And she's like, actually, you probably need to be less chummy with people when you interview. So be a little bit more professional. And then also there was some other little thing. And that was like the main pieces of feedback. And I was expecting her to be like, you don't know the fundamentals. You did blah, 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 blah. And then like all of a sudden I realized like, wow, this person who I'm literally paying to con constructively give me feedback is giving me like three or four pieces of feedback, but ultimately they weren't like these soul crushing things that I was prepared for. And it's almost like I wanted her to tell me I was horrible because it feeds into this story that I'm telling myself. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, A, I did something in her class, A, I was proud of, and B, she was proud of, and C, actually turned into some freelance work because she liked it so much. And awesome. I was like, it's not in her vested interest to blow smoke up my butt. Right. And she's like, in my opinion, one of the leaders in the field of UX research education. And I'm like, holy shit, like, sorry for cursing, but it's just no, like, oh, Eureka moment. Whereas like, if she doesn't think I'm a fraud, and then I was also seeing a career coach separate from you actually, that was specifically <laughs> for UX. So I had two, right. I was such an imposter. I had two career coaches. Um, and he's like, Mo, you know this stuff and it's not as hard as you make it out to be. And between you seeing you, seeing this other guy, going to this class, all at the same time, I was like, I'm doing so much, I'm, I, but I don't need to be doing so much anymore. Um, and maybe I never did. And I, once I realized that I had imposter syndrome and once I dealt with it through this class, I it felt like, you know, when you're going through like a 12 step program, you're supposed to say you're sorry to people. Mm -hmm. I didn't say I was sorry to people, but I called them and I'm like, you know what? Remember that awkward time when I was freaking out on this project or something? And they're like, no, actually, I don't remember that. And actually, I don't think you freaked out. But in my mind, right. I was like trying to apologize for like being an imposter or something. And they're like, you rocked that. And then, then through that, I was like, wow, people throughout my entire career saw me differently and saw me as an expert. And really, I was the only one the entire time that thought this. And this all happened during COVID, all of this stuff. And it, it was like a phoenix rising from the ashes. That's awesome. Kind of thing, you know. Well, I'm, I'm really proud of that journey because like, you know, I there's this idea in, I think in Zen, where, um, you know, if someone believes something, it doesn't help to try and convince them the opposite. So if someone has imposter okay. syndrome and I sit there and I start to say, no, you don't, you're not an imposter, stop having imposter syndrome. Like if I just keep telling them that they're wrong for having imposter syndrome, they're going to have more imposter syndrome because where you're reinforcing the fact that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, yeah. this idea in Zen is to say, uh, if someone believes something, you have to encourage them to believe it fully all the way to the farthest oh. point of belief. And so yeah. in, in, you know, what you did was you said, I believe this. And because I believe this, I need two coaches 
and this other course, right? <laughs> and then it was going through those, that excess, like going way too far probably, um, or maybe just far enough, I don't know. But by, by going through the process of trying to overcorrect, you found you didn't even need to correct as far as you did. And so it, yeah, it, I think that that's one of those things where it's like, if, someone's, if someone feels anxious to just tell them, well, what's there to be anxious about? It doesn't reduce yeah, their anxiety. Exactly. It makes them feel stupid for being anxious. And so what we need to do instead is say, okay, if you think you have anxiety, what are the hundred things that you probably need to do to overcome the anxiety? And then at some point in that process, they're gonna be like, why am I doing all these things? My anxiety is not even that bad. Yeah. And, and then and you go back to normal. What I, what I like about what you said twofold. One, not many people know about Zen Buddhism. And in my little understanding that I have, uh, Zen Buddhism was designed to help samurai warriors uh, deal with possibly dying on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And anxiety and imposter syndrome kind of make you feel like you're going to die. Yeah. It's really dangerous. And it's and even if it's not a literal death, it's a reputation death or. Oh, your, your ego. Mm-hmm. Ego the death, death yeah. of ego. And that's a real death, in my opinion. It just like the death of a, if you break up, it's the death of what could have been between somebody, you know? Right. And, and um, so that's what I, I like about that. And then also something that you mentioned is that you can't tell people to stop having it because like it's a it's an emotional thing. It's not a rational thing. Yeah. And our I I I study this as as a as a human centered designer who studies psychology that our decisions are made made emotionally, but often in our society we're conditioned not to deal in the realm of emotions. We're dealt right. trained to deal in the rational mind, but in um, what I've learned through dialectical behavioral therapy is you have the rational mind and you have the emotional mind and together, what only when you use both, do you have like the Venn diagram of the wise mind. So it really takes both, but you have to start, I believe with the emotional part and you're, and I was not ready to be open to being persuaded that I was wrong until I was relaxed. And what Michelle did is she created a safe learning environment where I could fail forward and learn. Mm -hmm. And in the work environment, I think most managers, most companies talk about it, but they don't really create a safe environment. No. School is a, or classes are safer. As a aspiring manager and thought leader and leader, I want to address this explicitly and make places that I work through my leadership and through 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 showcasing it through my behavior itself to make it a safe emotional environment because i think that's the only way people can actually we're all humans we're all trying to work together as humans but we don't treat each other as humans we treat each other as colleagues it's like this fancy word like we're just people <laughs> well and so talk a little bit more about that work environment cuz i think that's an interesting one cuz so many people are at startups or at companies and you know, I'm, I'm always a, a proponent of the, uh, we're not actually family <laughs> mindset. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, my family wouldn't fire me if the budgets changed. So exactly. um, <laughs> I, I do find that to be so interesting because it does, it creates these weird dynamics. And it's, it's like, 
you have a, a partially colleague dynamic, a partially friendship dynamic, a partially like someone's someone's saying they're your family member, but then also they're like trying to one up you and like yeah. get get your role. And <laughs> yeah, so yeah. T- talk a little bit about your experiences in the workplace and how maybe your perception of it has evolved as you've kind of come to terms with uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah. I'm really fortunate in that as a UX researcher and strategist, that particular niche is extremely collaborative. And as opposed to other types of tech, I think a lot more diverse and inclusive. In fact, there's probably more female professionals than I experience in other disciplines. And I think it's really good to have that diversity of thought and people bringing their own history and story and perspective because it's really implied explicitly and implicitly that like we all have a different way to add value and we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And I prefer collaboration over competition I prefer to compete against myself and collaborate with others. Just as my personal energy. But, and it also is a complementary skill to have collaboration in my field. So I can't speak to other disciplines because I haven't experienced them. I mean, I've done design, I've done research, I've done strategy, but I've never done engineering. I've never done product management. So I can only, speak to my own experiences, even though I know I've heard certain things um, about other disciplines. And so to me, what's really been a game changer is just not making a big deal out of all this stuff. It's like, hey, I have imposter syndrome, I'm dealing with it, and I can succinctly, calmly discuss it with somebody. And as long as it's done in a calm, succinct way, I think it can be handled really well in the workplace, you have to get to a point with probably, I had to get to a point with therapy and with coaching to work through my story and my angst in order to not freak other people out in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And not that I freak people out, but I was always afraid of that I would. Well, and one of the hard points about getting to that place is the worry of pausing or slowing down or taking a step back. And I find that that is that is the momentum that prevents people from ever going to therapy or, or stopping to consider if they're going in the right direction, right? One of the most interesting things about COVID layoffs is um, so many people have come to me and been like, I got laid off, but I couldn't be happier because I've been waiting yeah. for someone else to make this decision for me. And that to me is always fascinating because it's, um, it's almost like a uh, if you don't stop yourself at some point, the you know the world will stop you and make you make you reconsider things. Now yeah. it's obviously not universal, but the the idea that like we can keep going and keep going and keep going and never address these things. Like a lot of people will go through their whole career and never address these feelings. They'll just be manic in their job. Whereas, really good way to put it. Well, and I've you know, I've definitely had a manager like that. And I look back at that and I go, you know, I I was angry at the time, but I almost like feel like empathy or like wish she would have just like gone to see someone and like talk about things so that, you know, she didn't have to go through all that. And so when you think about it from that perspective, um, 
you know, what happened that allowed you to be able to slow down and think about about this stuff? Well, first, I'd like to address the term slow down because there's long term and there's short term. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, in most things in life, in order to have long term success, to be faster at that, you have to slow down in the short term. So I'm the type of, I'm a type A personality. I'd like to call myself a lowercase a because I'm a little softer than maybe the stereotype is, but I like to have a busy schedule. I like to juggle a lot. I like to have my different personal, interpersonal, professional worlds full of different communities and things and projects. And I have lists about my lists of things I want to do. But when I don't leave time to relax and slow down, I find that I burn out. And it's kind of like, as cliched as it is, it's kind of like the tortoise and the hare kind of thing. It's like, you're not going to win the marathon if you treat it like a sprint. Mm -hmm. And I think the same could be said is you're not going to win at your career if you treat it like a job. And really, Martin, working with you, I've translated my thinking from job mentality to career mentality. And there's been many other resources and people in my life that have tried to get, I've tried to get to that point, but you can't really get there till you're ready mm-hmm. and you can't force it. It's like that story of like a person walks down a street and they fall down like a hole. And then the next time they notice the hole, but they still walk in it. And then afterwards they like walk alongside the hole. And then the next time they just take another route. Right. And so you have to keep on repeating the same mistake of not slowing down, speeding up, and working harder, not smarter, and keep on doing that, boom, 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 until you hit your against your head against the wall and the, the wall is bloodied and you're like, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I can't do this. And you surrender, you accept that you don't have the answers and that what you've been doing all this time is absolutely crazy. You're nuts because you've been trying the same thing and it's not, resi- res- no different results. Um, and it's sad and it's, it's painful. You have to admit you're wrong. And I admitted that I had no idea. I mean, I wasn't an imposter, but I was, I didn't know what I was doing to get out of that loop of feeling like an imposter. Yeah. And well, and you brought up AA and there's a reading that I just read from a stoic uh, thing this morning, which was talking about, um, yeah, I love stoicism and, and they were talking about, um, surrendering right like i think it's a second step in in aa where it says surrender to a higher power and most of the time people use god for that but it doesn't have to be god it just has to not be you and the the quote in it i actually got it right here let's pull it up um the quote in it says um you don't have to believe that there is a god directing the universe you just need to stop believing that you are the director <laughs> and oh, it's uh, so painful to, to admit that you don't have control it's like and part of the serenity prayer i think is like granting me the ability to know the difference between things i can and can't control exactly and there's this book death of the ego or something like that it's all about stoicism and we're not at the center of the universe. And actually now that I'm helping, this is part of me helping other people is by talking about it openly in public and in this venue of the podcast. Um, 
is it's not about me anymore. It's about me helping people. And I channel my negative energy into positive energy because I, the, the thing that will literally and figuratively like transform all this stuff is when we make it about helping each other in community. So what does community mean? It can mean many things, but we always talk about like our industry, we're helping each other. We have Slack groups, we have Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups, all these things. When you show up repeatedly in the same group of people with the same intentions and you give, you can become part of a community only when you give, not when you receive. And I'm trying to give back because other people helped me. And also I'm selfishly helping people because mm -hmm. only when I take the attention off myself, do I find happiness and fulfillment. And in a certain way, it's altruistic in a certain way it's selfish, but it's selfish in a benign or, or, or helpful way. So I admit that there's, reasons that I'm doing this, but I think they're great reasons because one of the biggest pieces of advice that both um, Stephen Gates and Sarah Duty give is do not do this in isolation. Do mm -hmm. not suffer alone. You need to be open with that first one other person who you trust professionally, and then you need to open it up. And when you do, you'll realize everyone in the room has like the same issues. Even, even like Jimi Hendrix had anxiety before performing, you know, mm -hmm. gold medalists that do diving have fear of heights. Like you can look up all of these things. I, I believe it was like, even Beyonce has like certain issues. I mean, Beyonce. Oh yeah. Like, whoa. Yeah. So, I think uh, the lead singer from Rune 5 used to have his back to the audience when he started because he yes. was so scared. He had such bad stage fright. And, and even the Beatles were afraid when they first started um, rehearsing and performing at this one like hole in the wall venue in, in England or, or I think. And so, yeah, it's just, it's part of being human. And when you fight trying to be human, you fail every time because you're human. Hopefully yeah. you're human. Like if you're not human, then- <laughs> Right, well, if you're not human, <laughs> then why are you listening to this podcast? But uh, there's- I'm a robot. Yeah, I'm, a robot. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a robot <laughs> translating this these words. Um, so there's, there's an interesting thing, thing in there, which um, I'm kind of curious what your perspectives are on this. I've been noticing it more and more and I'm getting, um, I guess, more and more uh, viscerally, I have more and more visceral reactions to it, but like the positivity uh, porn that is, or the toxic positivity that exists online uh, in, in regards to a lot of these types of things. So when it comes to the Beatles had anxiety or when it comes to uh, Beyonce had anxiety, we hear that, right? And we go, okay, but, and then they also made millions of dollars, right? And I think that there's this weird thing that happens whenever we talk about overcoming imposter syndrome or overcoming anxiety or creating content online or whatever the thing might be, the, the formula seems to be I used to fail at everything. Then I, then I started posting on the internet and sharing my thoughts on things. Then I became a millionaire and now I'm like saving the world. And I feel like that narrative is so widely spread that it ends up paralyzing people who are just trying to deal with the day-to-day -day imposter syndrome and anxiety where it's like, I, I not only have to overcome my 
imposter syndrome, I also have to then become a millionaire and then save the universe. And then like, it almost like stacks up too much. It's like, oh, I not only have to overcome my imposter syndrome or my anxiety, I have to become Beyonce. And, and everyone says, well, Beyonce only has 24 hours in the day. So what are you doing with your time? So, yeah. you know, oh, all that, that kind of stuff. Right. So I'm kind of curious, you know, do you feel, what are your thoughts on that type of um, message and that type of, uh, on how it might impact people's ability to move through these yeah. ideas? Um, I never heard of the term toxic positivity before, but now that you describe it, like I totally have seen that. Um the secret to all of this is that Beyonce still fails. And when someone <laughs> fails, they learn, hopefully. And when they learn, they can do it again and they can iterate. And iteration is the key to design success. Iteration is the key to life success. And um, I don't think there has to be this end result or outcome where you make millions of dollars it's more likely to happen that you will be successful if you don't get your feelings hurt when you fail and you don't get your feelings hurt when you iterate and you just accept it as part of the process. And when you iterate, you get better. And like, so like, let's take Beyonce, for example, she's famous for having this like crazy archive of everything she's ever done. And she rewatches her stuff and she critiques herself more harshly than other people. I didn't realize I knew so much about Beyonce till this podcast, by the way. <laughs> But um, there's also this documentary, I think Becoming Beyonce or something like that, I probably need to watch. But anyways, um, if you get your ego out of the game and you just realize like, I need to screw up more, not less. And I need to basically change how, look, I tell, so like on the side I've done on the, in the past and recently I've done some like coaching myself and I kind of tell people, you have to play the game in a way where you're able to play it long-term. So whether the game is dating, whether the game is employment, you have to keep your skin in the game. You have to keep on playing. It's a game. It should be fun. You should be enjoying it. And when you enjoy it, like, why did I get into design in the first place? I didn't do it when I was a kid because I wanted to make money and make billions. I wanted to learn Photoshop so I could create a t-shirt and be like, have fun and cool t-shirts. Like, right. I still, I still want to do that. So how can you get back to like the joy and the play and when you're playing and you're trying to get better at a sport, you don't beat yourself up for not scoring a home run. You're like, oh my goodness, I got to play with my friends. And you end up getting better because you practice. And it's all about iteration and practice. They talk about mindfulness practice. There should be a mindful way of having practice in your work life. Right. Well, and, and I even think the practice thing gets um, kind of messed up in the way that we talk about it these days too, because we're like, you should practice and you should make it a daily practice and you should track your daily practice. And like, <laughs> and now all of a sudden, like this just happened to me recently. I was like, oh, I like yoga. I want to do more yoga. And I was doing it like two or three times a week. And then I was like, I should do it every day and track it. And I put it into an app and I go, I should add other things that I should track every single day of this app. <laughs> and then I had like, Yep. And then I had so many things in there that I would, and then I would like miss a day and I would beat myself up for it. And then I realized, wait a second, I am, I am actually more interested now in tracking than I am yeah, yoga. Yeah. You lost the purpose of the yeah. original thing. Yeah. And like, so, and so, yeah, that, that whole thing of like taking 10 steps back and being like, why am I even doing this? Like, is there even a core thing that I enjoy? Um, 
that's that's so huge. I appreciate you bringing that up. I like that you brought that up because it goes back to Zen Buddhism and Buddhism in general. You have the lenient way. You have the like extreme, like the extreme negative, the extreme positive. You have being lenient and being stringent, and literally, Buddhism says the path to enlightenment is that middle way in the middle. So you're balancing tracking what you're doing and doing it every day and like taking breaks and reminding yourself why you're doing it in the first place so that the tracking doesn't supplant the original reason like i don't know martin why did you want to do yoga why did you like it enough to want to do it more than once and try it the first time and never do it again in your life and i mean literally like why why is that why did yeah. you want to do yoga? uh it was calming i think and and I, when i'm stressed out it, it calms me down and so keeping that in mind of like, oh, wait, I like to do this because it's calming is important because then I realize, wait a second, if I turn this into something I'm tracking, it's no longer calming. It is, it is like tracking it ruins the calming aspect of it. And so I actually need to not track it and find other motivations. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, that is the thing where it's like, you know, I think we can turn self-help into something that is, uh, not, you know, productive. I think we can turn uh, a lot of these things in and in, in sort of flip them upside down because of the way that we think about things. It's like, if I'm not making money off of this, if I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, or if it's not immediately leading to an outcome, I think sometimes we get even more anxious about that stuff. And a lot of what we're talking about here, especially the letting go and realizing you're not the center of the universe, that really comes with a lot of like, okay, wait a second, if this isn't about me, how would I do it differently, right? If my career isn't even really about me, or if my personal brand isn't even really about me, how does it change the way I build that brand? How does it oh change the way yeah. I approach my job? And that go ahead, jump in. Uh, so that reminds me of Seth Godin's work. And he's really about how do you want to change the world by helping serve the people that you seek to help and change and improve their lives and really being a linchpin at being that person that's going to like move the needle to help other people. At the end of the day, you have your outputs and you have your outcomes and you really want to focus on the other, helping other people. Because that's really what people value and will give you money in exchange for that value. But the whole point of that is the money is used to sustain the effort to help others. Right. And if you help others well enough, you'll end up being successful financially. But the whole point is to make, make it sure that you still have a shirt on your back so you can help people tomorrow. That's the whole point. And the rest comes. So that's like the first part that I, that I really like about what you said. And then also, I think it's like an evolution of maturation, mature, becoming mature. Like when you're an adolescent, you think the world revolves around you. And as an adult and as a parent, you focus on other people. Or as a manager, you focus on other people. And it's a lot less scary. Like, I don't know, I used to be terrified on first dates. And then I realized it's like, can I just get to know another human being? Can I just see if we vibe naturally and not force it? Or like in job interviews, I had to convince people that I wasn't a, a of fraud or that I was an expert, but could it be something else? Could it be, can I just see if I like the other person in the other organization and go back to that? Like, why are you in it in the first place? Mm -hmm. And I think it's about reminding yourself. I learned this term 
NATO, not like the government NATO, but like the um, not attached to outcome. I learned it in an episode of Transparent on Amazon. Cool. So how can you have the outcome in mind because you want to do it for the reasons that you got into it? Like you wanted to get into yoga because you relaxed. So have the outcome in mind. So you're always filtering your yes or no decisions through that filter of why you're doing it, but don't be attached to the outcome, be directed in the compass. So you're going towards your outcome, but you don't have a map that's so rigid that if you don't reach the place that you want, it's counterintuitive. You will never reach where you want if you try so hard to force it. Right. Well, and that that plays right into the job search again, right? So many people go on yeah. an interview and they're like, this is my dream job. And I'm like, stop calling it your dream job. This is a so job. Put it on a pedestal. Right. The second you put it on a pedestal, it's like, this is my dream date. It's like, oh, you're going to trip walking like, in the door. Yeah. Okay. You're going to like clench it so tightly, you're going to lose it. And and those are the things where, in my mind, um, it, it, that practice of non-attachment, right? I, I was watching a video recently about... Um, you know, relationships. It's like, uh, and so someone actually asked the question using a dog as an example. They said, you know, you know, I might, I might be willing to go as far as to die for my dog. Um, but how do I like, is that real love? Or is that like over attachment? Like, what is that? And they're like, the person who they were talking to some spiritual guy, he goes, um, could you live without your dog? And the guy's like, well, I want to say no. Uh, it's like, but clearly, of course I could. And, um, and like, it's like, just because you're not attached doesn't mean you don't care and doesn't mean the thing goes uh, away. And that's that, the same with acceptance. exactly. It's like, just because you're not attached and that's the pushback I always get, because I put up a post saying like the job you're applying to probably sucks. And I got pushed, <laughs> and I got pushback. I love that so much. Oh. <laughs> well, and I got pushback on it, and and I was like, but it probably does. I mean, everyone I talked to has some shit to say about a job, even ones that they liked. And um, there's there's this idea that like, if I don't believe it's gonna change my life forever, if I don't believe that this is my dream job then I won't have it. Then I won't be able to keep it. Then it'll go away. And I'm like, I had another post recently and I was like, you never had the job in the first place. It was a rental. Every job is a uh, rental. Ooh, that's a good one. And, and these ideas, I'm like, I'm like the, they're helping me realize like everything is temporary. And being a contractor helped with that a lot because you know I know I'm temporary everywhere I go. And so that's that when, when someone gets on the phone with me and it's like, we have to, you know, wrap up this contract in two months, I don't get hurt by that. Whereas they're bracing for like, you know, someone to like cry or like, you know, they're bracing for a firing and I go, yeah, yeah that's cool. What, what, what do you need me to do in the meantime? And they're like totally caught off guard by it. And just because you don't need it doesn't mean you won't continue having it. And, yes. and that and I think is way, important. I think it's even better we think, oh, if we don't cling to it and fear it's lost, then we'll lose it. Right. But ultimately it's, that is a distraction to the thing itself that you're trying to keep. Yeah. And I mean, how many stories are there of the clingy person that ends up ruining the relationship because they're too clingy, right? Uh, and like, that's, that's the core. And, or people that are so wound up about their job that they never relax and then no one wants to be around them. And then they end up getting let go because they're creating a tense environment or something like that. It's, it's such a cliche that like the work world and the job hunt is like dating. However, 
I find it very useful as a metaphor because if you're struggling in your work life, but you're not struggling in your dating life at the same time, you can create that analogy and that metaphor where, well, what's working in my dating world that I can bring into my work world or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And if it's not going well for you now in both realms, in the past, at least one was going well at one point. And if, even if that's not the case, you've, you've, you have friends and family that have had something happen and there's always relative levels of success. Right. But if you can say like, how is, how am I needy at work? Usually people don't use the word needy at work. But like, how am I needy at work? Oh, well, let me look how I'm needy in relationships. Is there some connection? Well, how am I confident at work? Well, how am I confident in relationships? And ultimately, I'm so I'm starting a new job pretty soon, and it's it's in a consulting firm. So I literally I've done consulting before, but I wanted to like refresh myself with the beginner's mind and that kind of thing. And I was like, what is consulting? How is consulting different than agency work and that kind of thing? And you know what everyone said? And I, I downloaded all these books from Blinkist. They're like 20 minute summaries of books. Everybody was basically like the summary of the book is that consulting is about relationship building. And I was just like, like five <laughs> authors of consulting books. Like that's all they had to say basically was like, it's about relationships. And I was like, wow, it's a good thing that I've focused on helping other people with their relationships because my relationship to my clients are going to be more, more front and center yeah. than if I was in an in-house position where it's still important, but you don't have, the stakes aren't as high with an in-house position. So I actually would venture to say that it's spoken about in cliched ways, but the fundamental overlap between it is it's all relationships at the end of the day. Yeah. And just like you can have different kinds of love there's different kinds of relationships and you can love your job, but you don't, and you love your spouse, but they're the same word, but they're not the same meaning. Yeah. So I, there's something here to play with that I, I'd be excited to explore deeper at some point, but for sure. Know. Well, and that's, and that's really the thing is, is figuring out what that relationship is. You know, some people are like, well, I only have, you know, I, I think the average is like the average number of friends someone has is one. And, uh, and yeah, and and then they say like the healthy average is like three to five, um, wow. but uh, typically I think people are like, well, this person I'm not counting them because they don't call me every week or because oh, this or that yeah. or the other thing, and I try to keep a much broader view of all of it. It's like it's just one giant spectrum from person I don't know to person I'm dating, and everything else is somewhere in the middle, right? And, you know, there's acquaintances and then there's like coworkers and then there's colleagues and like, you could have a coworker that's not a colleague and you could have, and so on and so forth. And so I do think that a lot of this is, is quite um, interesting to look at from a relational standpoint. And of course, dating and dating and jobs, jobs hunting are so similar because it's dealing with people. It's managing rejection. It's yeah. doing all the same similar things and networking is so much like dating um, hopefully you're not taking it to that level. Cause then you start to get creepy, oh, yeah. but, um, you got a business card for dating. You're like, yeah. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so, and so, but those are the things where you start to go, like, you know, I tell someone to go network and they think I have to go make best friends. And I'm like, no, you have to go make acquaintances, like go make hundreds of acquaintances. 80% of them will forget who you are. And the ones that are left over yourself, oh, like that, and I can't, I can't even count the number of people that I've networked with. And, you know, I started out as anxious as anyone having like full on panic attacks going on, on networking meetings, but like at a certain point, you're just constantly meeting people and 
the people that stick around stick around and that's that is how relationships tend to go the problem is that most people won't leave the house and like or won't set up the call and that's you know everyone says it's hard to make friends out of college or it's hard to uh, make friends as an adult or it's hard to meet people professionally it's like it is if you don't go to the event it is if you don't do you know take the initiative but truly at the end of the day the reason that is the thing that is stopping us is going back to the original point we need to have a good enough relationship with ourselves to actually go talk to another person, right? If we're totally beating ourselves up before we even get there, anything they say is going to be interpreted by us as negative. And then we won't be able to build that connection because we have a filter that is changing the words, literally changing the words as they go through our head. There was a book that I read uh, two years ago that really transformed how I thought about networking and community building and dating and business. It's called Belong, and it's written by the woman who started Daybreakers. Or do you mm-hmm. know Daybreakers? Yeah, is? yeah. Um, what's her name again? I can't remember. Mickey, it it's it's one of the Agarwalds. Yeah, Agarwalds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, basically, for those who are listening or watching who don't know, Daybreakers is a weekday pre-work sober rave combined with yoga and a yeah. breakfast bar it kind of feels like burning man and it's it's amazing. super fun yeah i drink and way too much uh cold brew coffee at those things <laughs> yeah i i started drinking cold brew coffee because of them so um you you if you look at connecting to other people and connecting to yourself through this the lens of this book which is wonderfully illustrated and wonderfully written and very succinct um it helped me have a healthier attitude. And really, I think at the end of the day, all of this is about attitude and, and building a healthy way of relating to the feelings and thoughts that we all have and not trying to cut them off, stop them. Cause when you, when you don't want it, you have it and it gets larger. Mm-hmm. When you accept it and you channel it, you can you harness it for positivity, but not everything is always going to end up positively. So you're going to get your knees bruised. You're going to get your head knocked in, your teeth chipped, but you're going to get up and you're going to, it's not about getting knocked down. It's about whether you get back up again and realizing that these things that feel like mortal wounds are really paper cuts. Mm -hmm. But I am one to say that because every paper cut my my mom tells me (laughs) feels like a nuclear explosion because I have all like you, I also have anxiety issues. And so knowing what it feels like, and it's like we're in a virtual reality and like we're getting like shot by virtual guns, but we th- we're behaving as if we're getting actually shot. Right. We take off the VR mask. And we're like, oh wait, there is actually no damage. Um, that's a, yeah. that I liked what you said earlier, which was um, you went back to talk to people and apologize and you realized they, number one, didn't remember it happening. And number two, never had that opinion. And I've been, you know, one of one of the best parts about, um, you know, going down this path and like studying these things and practicing these things is I've gone back and talked to old managers and been, and I actually went back and talked, I sent an email to someone who I had my worst informational interview with back in college, six years later. <laughs> and the message I wrote was, um, the headline was, thank you for the learning experience. And the body of it was, you probably don't remember me, but I had the worst informational interview of my life with you. And I just want to say thank you and uh, for the learning experience. And he wrote back, he's like, you're right. I have no idea who you are. I don't remember that happening. Um, 
and and it started to one of the things that kind of hits me because i've been in the branding world so long i've been through the neurotic phases of it and stuff like that um i used to go to events and my old business partner was always like he's much he's much more hype than i am he's he's much more out there and like uh showy and uh and I, I, it's almost like he's, uh, he's, he's the hype man and I'm the anti-hype man in a way. Um, and we, we laugh about it, but he's like, uh, he told me once years ago, he's like, you know, you're not very memorable at these events that we're going to. Like you, you know, we, we go, we leave, like people will see us for the second time and they'll remember him, but not remember me. And I used to get so offended by that. Um, I don't even know if I was offended. I think I just felt like I wasn't doing something right. And, and now I'm like, wait, that's like, a superpower to be able to have a second chance at a first impression. Oh like, yeah, you mentioned that before. That, I that's that. incredible. Yeah. And and that yeah. to me is one of those things where like, again, it's perspective. Like I, at one point I was like, oh, should I be more memorable? Should I wear a flashy coat? <laughs> like both because it's almost like I can picture you in a movie, Martin, where like you get all these do-overs because no one remembers. It's like you cause amnesia in people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. Like with me though, <laughs> It's like with me, I'm too memorable and you'll either love me or you'll hate me, but you won't forget. And sometimes I want people to forget because like, <laughs> <laughs> I put my foot in my mouth. I did something weird or something. I don't know. Yeah. But that, it's I that, think, again, it's how you react. It's how you react yeah, exactly, to it. Exactly, and that's yeah. what matters the most. So um, I know we're, we're coming to the end here, but um, Mo, thanks for joining us. Where can folks find out more about you? Uh, www.mogolds.com. So first name and last name. Um, and then extra extra UX directs to my, my same homepage. So those are the two places I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. So uh, reach out. I'm always, I'm on ADP list, which is a way to find mentorship for free pro bono coaching for UX. Um, and you can look me up on that directory as well. That's awesome. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope everyone goes and checks out what you're working on. I know you got some new things going on in your career coming up. And Mo, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for stopping by this episode of the Career Therapy Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. And if you're curious about what we do here at Career Therapy, head on over to www.careertherapy.com to see all of our coaching options, resources, and links to other things we got going on. If you would like to share your story on this podcast, something that you've gone through, a transition you've experienced in your career, whether it's getting a job after college or going through a layoff or getting back into the workforce after raising your family, we would love to hear from you. Head over to linkedin.com slash in slash Martin McGovern and shoot me a DM. Let me know what's going on, and i really like to share your story with the world. What we're trying to do here is really normalize the emotional side of the job search because we all go through it. We all have tough times in our careers, and sharing these stories really helps people feel less alone and feel more empowered to take their career back into their own hands and make something of it. So thank you again for stopping by. If you'd like to leave a like or a comment, subscribe or share, or leave us a review on iTunes, and I think maybe even Spotify, we'd really appreciate it. Best of luck to you in all of your career endeavors, and I'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.